so one thing I love sharing with people because my journey now is to really hopefully destigmatize mental health in life in the workplace. And so I do that by storytelling, but and telling my own story to certain degrees to certain audiences. But what I what I find most powerful is that many times, so many times I've told my story and people come back and say, oh, you know, I struggled with mental health or my husband had a mental health crisis or, and so hearing one person's story allows other people, gives permission and allows other people to share their stories. From Goose Creek Consulting, welcome to the Silver Linings Handbook. I'm Jason Blair. That's Macy Cox, a friend, a learning and development specialist at the National Science Foundation and the co-chair of the Mental Health Employee Resource Group. The Employee Resource, Resource Group advocates for better understanding of mental health issues among employees and leaders within the federal agency. Macy has 18 years of professional experience in human resources, starting her career in the private sector, working in recruitment for executives and at law firms. More recently, she's been doing very similar things in federal HR roles. Recently, Macy shared her mental health journey at a government-wide U.S. Office of Personnel Management, Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Summit. Today, we're going to be having a conversation about mental health in the workplace, Um, looking at some issues around mental health and stigma, looking at issues around what leaders can do and what leaders can learn about mental health and how employees can empower themselves in the workplace in this area. Macy, you and I met about five years ago when you joined the National Science Foundation and the company I work at was working as a coaching contractor. I think we took to working together primarily because you have a wonderful sense of humor. (laughs) Um, But it wasn't until 2020, um, during the COVID pandemic, that we ever had a chance to talk about our mental health journeys. And as I recall, the way that it started was that a therapist you had seen had suggested uh, you take a look at the International Bipolar uh, Foundation, which is a foundation I had been on the board of, and you notice, well, surprise, Jason's bio is here. So, you know, we found out we had a lot in common. And I I was wondering if you could share a little bit about, you know, that moment and your your own mental health journey. Sure. You were... um... You were a great resource for me at that time as I was struggling. So uh, my mental health journey really started after the birth of my first son in October 2012. I was suffering from postpartum anxiety and depression, which was really undiagnosed at the time. And I stopped sleeping, like wasn't sleeping at all at night, even though my little tiny baby was sleeping and I wasn't, which was really frustrating. And so finally, I sought therapy treatment through the Navy's, which was my employer at the time's employee assistance program. I didn't really know where to go for support. And they, we had had a death in our office at the time, and they had said, you know, you can seek out EAP counseling. 
And so I went to them and they actually referred me out to private therapy. And after I found a therapist I connected with and worked with her for a while, she really strongly encouraged me to visit a psychiatrist and consider medication. And I was super resistant to that for a long time, but uh, it got to a place where I felt like I really needed more support. And so I sought out a psychiatrist, which was frankly very hard to do in Northern Virginia market and really got medication to support my anxiety and depression. And it, it made a huge world of difference. And I got back to work regularly and, and things were working well. Well, fast forward to the fall of 2013, and I was on site at the Washington Navy Yard during the shooting in September. And we were in lockdown for 12 hours, and I was panicking about my son at a daycare. We really didn't know what was going on. And it totally rattled me to the core that day. But I didn't really recognize how much it struck me or affected me until March 2020 when COVID hit and I actually simultaneously had a major mental health crisis. So to set the stage for that crisis, one day we were just all forced to pack up, leave the office and work from home indefinitely. The kids, mine at the time were three and seven were sent home for quote unquote remote parent-led learning while we were supposed to be working full time. And my kitchen, ironically, was demoed down to the studs the week prior. So mm -hmm. those combinations and the stress of the combination of those experiences with my really complex brain, which I didn't know the extent of it until then, led to this crisis and my brain really misfired. And I got super sick and I had to do both inpatient and outpatient treatment I was in and out of work for almost six months. And actually, that's in the time that we started talking about this. And you were providing some guidance for me and resources and, and people to talk to further. But I really got to the point where I was like, am I ever going to be back to what I thought was myself or back to me or, or what's the new version of me? And in that time, during that journey, I you know, during that struggle, I was carrying around a lot of shame. Mm. And shame is super, uh, as you know, probably cultural for mental illness. Yeah. Why should we feel shame when we have no control over what's going on? But what I learned was eight in 10 employees say shame and fear around mental health prevent them from seeking help. So, you know, after continued therapy, a lot of changes of medications, a good amount of self-care, and a lot of time, I really found my sweet spot. And my boss was so supportive of me. He rallied my team around me. They lifted me up. They supported me. They believed in me. They weren't like afraid of me or afraid to talk to me. He accommodated my slow return to full speed at the office and his whole the whole leadership team really did in that respect. And I was able to get back to my new self. And I was ultimately diagnosed more than six months after the crisis with PTSD and bipolar two. And I've been stable now for just over two years. Two years. I remember, um, you know, in some of those conversations, I remember exactly where, where I was walking during that time, probably myself feeling a lot of anxiety about COVID and all the unknowns. And, you know, I remember there were a lot of things that you were going through and that you mentioned there that were very relatable to me. Mm -hmm. And one that really stuck out was that idea of 
early in your you know recovery and early in your treatment, it feels like it's never going to get better. You yeah. know, you're, you're you're changing medications and you're trying this and you're sedated, and I find that part of what you're talking about is very relatable and it's very difficult. And and one of the things that I thought about during that time, because you would ask me, you know, the same thing I asked other people when I was going through it, is this ever going to end? Am I ever going to get better? And I kept on thinking to myself, even though I didn't say it to you, Macy, you have no idea how fast you are <laughs> on the scale. Right. You're doing so much better than most people. But there were two other things that stuck out to me. This might surprise you. So I was diagnosed in 2003 and I spent every waking moment learning about bipolar. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until 2005 when Jane Polly uh, wrote her book. Yeah, Skywriting, which is Mm -hmm. a book about her own diagnosis of bipolar, which was, you know, postpartum. It wasn't until then that I even knew that, you know, uh, postpartum, a lot of women develop symptoms of mood disorders. I had no idea about Mm -hmm. that. And then the other thing that really struck me about your story, and I'll ask you to talk a little bit more about these different things, because I think the postpartum part of it can be a blind spot for people, for husbands, wives, for um, other loved ones, and for for people who experience it themselves. Because it sounds a lot like what other people say they're experiencing, but it isn't really. But the other thing that struck me about you telling your story was, you know, we talked and we talked and we talked and it wasn't until several conversations in that you mentioned, or I knew about the Navy Yard shooting. Mm-hmm. And I was like, this feels very similar to me because, you know, I was in Manhattan for the September 11 attacks mm-hmm. and I didn't realize until I had a complete panic attack in 2009 that I had post-traumatic symptoms. Yeah. And it took until 2020 for me to really talk to a therapist about it, like to really realize this is a driving force. So talk to me a little bit about those things and going through those experiences. So during my crisis, I I basically was in a extreme manic state of psychosis and I was having real um, trauma and thoughts that horrible things were happening to my family. Like, so super paranoia. Um, there was guns. I, I thought I heard gun shooting and it all, I mean, when I ultimately got to a psychiatrist and I, the reason that this comes up too is the PTSD because when I went back to work, I filed a work owner's comp, um, claim and I was like, oh, there's no way they're going to accept this because my my psychiatrist thought, well, clearly the Navy Yard shooting had something to do with this and had a huge effect on you. And when I met with the psychiatrist that was assigned to my case through workers' comp, she was like, oh, yeah, I mean, there's no doubt in my mind that this impacted what just happened to you and what's transpired during your crisis. And they approved my workers' comp claim from 2013 in 2020, 2021. Maybe. Oh, seven years, seven years later. It's yeah. one of the things that I that I, I marvel about with um, post-traumatic stress is that 
it's almost as if the resilience of the human mind, right? We go yeah. through something that's very difficult. Our resilience allows us to bounce back to what feels like normal, but it it almost creates this blind spot to how much it affected us. Right. And it, almost like one of our strengths creates a blind spot there. And you're just like holding on for dear life. I mean, the way that my therapist described my recovery from the 2013 shooting and, and just handling that was just like, you're just holding on for dear life. You're like, you're not sure you're just getting by barely c- keeping it together. Not, uh, and, and, and at the time in 2013, I wasn't actually in therapy, um, during the shooting. And I went back to my therapist immediately and said, this has really impacted me. I probably need to be talking to you. And it really rattled my core. And, and she again recommended I get back to a psychiatrist because I hadn't been being seen by a psychiatrist. Um, My OB was prescribing my medication. Mm -hmm. And so basically what ended up happening, the reason that everything, I mean, not the reason, but one of the reasons things came to a head in 2020 was because I was under medicated. And I had been dealing with a mood disorder and serious anxiety just on my own, uh, being under medicated for a number of years. And, and that sort of led to where I was at. Were there for you, were there, you know, because I look back, um, I like to tell the story of how when I first went to rehab, there was this form and it was like your normal medical history. And it asks you about your family. Does anyone have you know, uh, diabetes, cancer, you know, different mental health conditions. And I went through the whole list, right. And checked off, you know, no, 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 no. To everything I think, except for diabetes. And one of the things that struck, struck me as after I got diagnosed, I found out like two of my aunts had bipolar, one was schizophrenic. My mom had anxiety, like it all comes out, right? Yeah. 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 (laughs) It, it makes me think about how even within the closest people to me, mm-hmm. when, you know, I did not know about their mental health journeys. And then the, the second thing that really came out of that that was great is in talking to all of them, you know, and I think that speaks to stigma, mm-hmm. right? Even within families, within some of the people who are close to you. But what, what became clear to me too was, whoa, there were a lot of warning signs than I, yep. I was younger. Did you have those kinds of warning signs? Or yes. So that's so interesting. So one thing I love sharing with people because my journey now is to really hopefully destigmatize mental health in life in the workplace. And so I do that by storytelling, but, and telling my own story to certain degrees, to certain audiences. But what I, what I find most powerful is that Many times, so many times I've told my story and people come back and say, oh, you know, I struggled with mental health or my husband had a mental health crisis or, and so hearing one person's story allows other people, gives permission and allows other people to share their stories. But along with my mental health diagnosis, my father is bipolar, but was not diagnosed until well into his thirties. And he struggled with serious depression and then serious highs. And his case was pretty straightforward. He got on a medication right away that they, that he's been on for 50 years. 
and they've never changed it. And he's been really well balanced and been able to maintain it. But I never thought that I, I never showed signs as a kid. I definitely had anxiety, but I never went into manic stages, I thought, or, or deep depressions. But from my therapist perspective, she thinks that I've been dealing with this for a, a long, long time. And just the, the things that I experienced, the, the pro- postpartum and then the trauma at the Navy Yard and then COVID, which was really another trauma for me and for everyone in the world, which sort of set me off and put me over the edge. Yeah, and it's a it's a interesting thing in thinking about it because I I, I think I can assume you're not fifty, so mm-hmm. <laughs> not know, yet, not yet, right, not yet. But so for most of your life, even though your dad was diagnosed with bipolar, he was relatively stable, so it probably wasn't even really like a conversation that people right often had. And we didn't talk about it at all. Yeah, that's fascinating. And that's fascinating and interesting to me and potentially a warning sign for me. So I might incorporate that, <laughs> that well, idea. And it's like, it's to the point of the diabetes, like you said with uh, your aunt or someone who has diabetes, with someone who has diabetes, we talk about that and we talk about the medication they use to treat the disease. Why can't we talk about mental health and the medications we treat to, to, to our diseases that we treat to our diseases? We like to say, at NSF, we all have mental health. It's true. We all have that. We don't have mental health diagnosis. We aren't, you know, all suffering from mood disorders, but we all have mental health that we have to take care of every day. So I'm really out to talk about mental health so that it's like talking about any other health issue that people struggle with in life. I don't want to feel shame around my struggle And I'm proud of what I went through. I'm proud of my struggle, my journey, where I'm at. And I felt like in order to continue to destigmatize that and make myself continue to feel more comfortable and confident about it, I had to share my story so that I can power others as well. I think that's a really powerful point because I I hadn't really thought about it until you said it, but every employee at NSF could be a part of the mental health employee resource group because we all have it. It it reminded me of when I first got diagnosed and I started to stabilize, which was around 2007. So it went from 2003, it was like trying 50, 60 different medications. In 2007, finally, a good combo was in place and somebody gave me a piece of advice. And I don't know if it's still relevant today, but I passionately wanted to help people with mental health issues, and I wanted to become an advocate. And this is a very smart person who was an advocate themselves, um, very public uh, mental health diagnosis. She said, like, be very careful. You don't want to become the professional patient. And what she was really talking about was this idea that you can be stigmatized as uh, just just your disease. And I think the way that you're approaching it, that idea that we all have mental health is probably destigmatizing in itself. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that's just, so So, is that what inspired you to share your story? What was it that inspired you to share your story with your workplace? Because yeah, like on my journey back to health and wellness and, you know, doing all the things that you have to do to get better, which is you have to give it time. You have to get the right combination of medications. You have to, 
get treatment through therapy and, and, and see your psychiatrist a lot. And, you know, and again, time was hard for me. That was like I said to you, am I ever going to get better? Am I ever going to get better? I just started thinking like, and I had met people, I had met people in inpatient and outpatient who uh, really sort of changed my thoughts about mental health who really had much greater struggles than I had, who were struggling because maybe they didn't have a place to call home or they didn't have a supportive family that were, that was supporting them through it. I, you know, I have all the resources in the world. I'm really privileged and lucky and grateful for that. Um, I have health insurance. I have a roof over my head. I have a super strong and supportive husband and family that was willing to talk me through this and support me however I needed it. I was able to afford therapy to the tune of $250 an hour uh, that's not covered by insurance. I met all these people who didn't have those resources and I just, I felt for them and I, and I, and I wanted to figure out ways that I could just support mental health and like talking about this. And so I just found when I was coming back to work, I thought, you know, what, how great would it be given all the trauma that we've gone through during COVID and the stress of that, the burnout, you know, the, the having no boundaries between home and work, having kids at home that we're trying to um, manage while we're also trying to work. I just thought, I'm sure other people need support. And like, what a great way to create a support network by creating an employee resource group specifically around mental health. And at the time they said to me, what would you consider doing one more focused around disability that could have a mental health, you know, focus or component, right? Things. And I was like, I don't know enough about that. Like, I mean, I know I now qualify as a person with a disability because I have a mood disorder and I can click the box on the forum and I'm constantly trying to get people to self-identify because that helps the agency provide better resources for us, for people. But um, I didn't feel like I was experienced enough with disability as a whole, but I thought, well, I've gone through this crazy traumatic experience with mental health and, you know... I can tell my story and that can create community. And um, so I just worked on building that with a colleague that I met through another colleague who has her own, has their own mental health story and journey um, that they share. And so together, the two of us have just gone around the foundation and built this community. We have like 110 people in the group. We, we only probably get 15 to meet on a regular basis. But that's still 15 people connecting. We have a very active um, Microsoft Teams channel where we share information. And we talk about just like stress and burnout, you know, and, and how that affects people in the workplace right now. It's not just, again, we try not to just say it's a, a some sort of diagnosis or that you're going through a crisis. But you wouldn't believe the amount of people that have come to us. You know, we have supervisors that come to us and say, we know this person's struggling what do you think we can do to help support them? We have people come to us saying, I'm struggling. What should I do? We have people coming to us and saying, thank you for sharing your story. This is what I'm dealing with. So it, it was just a, it was the right timing for this kind of group to be formed. And again, like you said earlier with COVID, it's a serious trauma that we've all 
live through the isolation alone is really hard to deal with. And so the timing was right. Yeah. And that, yeah, that's neat. Uh, I think striking to me and neat to me that you've become a resource group for the supervisors and managers. You mentioned the thing about, you know, sort of feeling like you were somewhat privileged by having access to care, mm-hmm. something that everyone doesn't have, family support. And it reminds me when I, I, don't, I when I first started um, my mental health journey, one of the things that I did was I started a... Um, bipolar support group, a group uh, for people who had bipolar in the area that I was at. And it ended up being super powerful for me. So when I became a coach and I was coaching in the mental health space uh, at a group called Ashburn Psychological Services, which was a psychiatric and psychological practice, there was this brilliant psychiatrist there named Mahul Mankad, who eventually left the practice and went to run the psychiatric group at Duke University and its health system. Wow. And he said something so powerful to me. He said, Jason, and I was making the case that, hey, our support group can be beneficial for your clients. And he actually said to me, if I could only give patient one thing out of three things, family support, peer support, and or medication, he said, I would give them peer support and then I would give them family support and then I would give them medication. Yeah. That coming from a psychiatrist was um, super, super powerful for me. You know, that that, the thing that you mentioned about leaders and supervisors was kind of interesting to me. What kind of advice do you think we could give managers you know, you mentioned everyone's going through stress and burnout. Everyone's give, going through different things. And then some people do have mental health conditions that, you know, create an enormous amount of pressure. And you and I know that people who have mental health conditions are no less smart, no less capable, no less able. But during those moments, I think a lot of managers really struggle with what do I do because mm-hmm. the person that, you know, that I normally work with, that I normally manage, that I normally coach, that I normally sort of supervise has has shifted somehow. What kind of what kind of advice would you give for them in terms of educating themselves or it's it's hard because I think people because there still is such stigma around mental health, I think it's hard because people are afraid to say the wrong thing and do the wrong thing. And yeah. you know all I can, all I know is my own experience. And gratefully, luckily I have a boss and a supervisor who was just super supportive there when I needed him, you know, far enough away that wasn't suffocating, checked in on me regularly when I was recovering, of course, wanted me to check in with him and asked me to share, you know, photos or things that I was doing or, you know, how, how I was feeling didn't put any pressure on me to get back and recognize that I was still me and that, you know, I was having this time and this moment and this struggle, but that he knew he, he knew I was going to be back to me or some version of myself. So I think like what I said to this manager recently is, you know, not being afraid to share your own story. So if someone's struggling Again, 
it's storytelling is always so relatable and it gives them permission to share with you what's going on too. And listening actively um, and just trying to find space to allow this person to heal and, and get the help, get them the help that they need. Again, one of the things we do in our employee resource group is we try to educate around the resources we have within the agency. And we have so many resources. We have employee assistance. We have a 800 number that's called Talk Now, where if you can't get the counselor and it's off hours, you can call at any time 24-7 and get support. Um, we have a work-life program that's really robust and provides sort of like concierge services. So you're struggling in your life. You're struggling at home. You you don't have time to be researching X, Y, and Z that's going on, or you know, you're you have a, a leak in your roof and that's stressing you out. We have concierge services that can do the research for you to find the roof, the roof guy that you need. All the resources that we have, the employee resource group, I said to this person recently, like, please refer this person to our group. I know that there's stigma around mental health, but we are a group and a community of people that are not afraid to talk about mental health. And again, we all have mental health. And so just encouraging that. And and I think I also encourage managers to recognize and understand the importance of protecting and caring for their own mental health, as well as that of the staff. Mm. So they have to sort of set the tone and establish the expectations that people have to tend to their mental health, whatever that looks like. And they have to lead with vulnerability and share even their own struggles. You know, we have an executive champion for our mental health group who we asked to be our executive champion because he was so outspoken about his mental health struggles during the pandemic and the things that had he'd been suffering from. And so it was so inspiring to see someone at that executive level sharing their story and normalizing the conversation that we really wanted him to champion our group. So, you know, having them storytell, but also listen and, and have compassion and then provide resources. But I do think that a lot of it stems from this fear of not like knowing what to say mm. and not knowing what to do and, and perhaps saying the wrong thing. So maybe even educating, because one of the things yes. that I found powerful about having peer support, because maybe, you know, not every employer has all of those resources. A lot of them have some was that peer support, whether it came from a group or just someone you knew or a person in your family could lead you to some of those um, resources that are available that a lot of people just don't know about. It's it, interesting too the thing that you said about storytelling. One of the things that I try to do, and I think this has a lot to do with just my life experiences told me that I need to be transparent. I need to be authentic for my own health. I need to be who I am. So, you know, I let people know that I'm a little wild before, before they figure <laughs> out on their own. <laughs> but I'm very open about my staff, with my staff. Um, in the welcome video that we have um, for new employees, I talk about my mental health. I often talk about it in meetings and very casually at times. Um, people, even though I'm in a leadership role, I, I am very open about a tough day or my medication or other things like that. And the interesting thing that I think it's done 
is it's created an environment where my employees can be very supportive of me. They can be open. They can walk in and they can say, you seem a little off today. Right. Um, right. Yeah. And that helps me. But on the other the other end of the spectrum, it creates an environment where they can talk to me about their mental health and an employee who was who we both know, but I won't name, who was struggling for maybe more than a year, you know, shifted from, you know, being one of the most high performing employees yeah. in the company to just struggling to make it through the day. If this person could put in two hours, three hours a day. But what the colleagues who knew about it, they lifted this person up. They just lifted that person up and helped them. And afterwards, what as she started to sort of get better and get back to herself, she said this thing to me that was just very powerful. And, you know, she said, when I didn't have faith in myself, and I'm thinking about your boss in this situation, your faith in me was part of what carried me. Mm. And it's almost like your boss had a faith in you mm -hmm. during that moment that you just couldn't find for yourself. Mm -hmm. Is that fair? That's totally fair. Yeah. That's, I love that. Yeah. I mean, because when you're in those down moments or in those struggles or, you know, you're in recovery, it's hard, it's hard to see yourself. It's hard to look in the mirror and see the person that you thought you were and how different that person is, but that at the core, you're still yourself. Does that make sense? Oh yeah, completely. I and mean, so having the support from someone like your supervisor, knowing that just believing in you and believing in your ability to recover and, and get back to a place where you can be really successful. And again, in, in my outpatient program, you know, a number of the people that I met didn't have jobs, didn't have the ability to even be in a work environment. So just not on top of isolation, right? Isolation and all that struggle, not even having a place to go or to feel like you can get back to, like, I just felt so grateful that in my outpatient program, I was doing that, um, in af afternoons for six weeks. So I would work in the morning and then go in the afternoon and meet with this, these groups and just seeing the struggles that they had too, comparatively. I mean, you're not supposed to compare, but I just, it helped me recognize, realize that I would be able to get back to myself. Yeah. One of the parts of my journey that was powerful and meeting people who saw in me too, you know, I had someone come up to me and just give me a, um, a card that says something like you're worth it. And they said, you know, thank you for sharing your story and you're going to get out on the other side of this. It's just going to take time. Yeah. I always found that super powerful for me hearing about, you know, in those early days of recovery for me, hearing about other people's mental health struggles mm -hmm. in, in the peer support group and being able to see in that moment where I didn't believe that I would get better, this person who mm -hmm. described a who seemed so healthy and seemed so, so um, good described to me feelings that I sort of felt were terminally unique at that moment that gave me hope. And I've always thought that's why it's really important for people, even once they've 
made it far in the recovery to still stay engaged with the people who are still struggling. And mm-hmm. another point that you made that I, I thought was interesting, like when it comes to you're still the same person you are, I didn't recognize myself during that time of early recovery in the mirror. And, you know, it was a very humbling experience to be uh, diagnosed. Um, it was very humbling experience to need so much help. And, you know, I, I always saw myself as very independent and other things like that. But ultimately, one of the really interesting things about that humbling experience that I, t- I talk to people about, because I often get the question of like, if you had it all over again, and you wouldn't have gone through um, the difficulty of your, your diagnosis and and the sort of crushing blows of your disease in the beginning, would you do it again? And I say, it's painful, but I would choose the path again mm-hmm. because there was a part of it that changed me mm-hmm. and made me a more compassionate, a more mm-hmm. humble, a more caring person. And, and I wanted to ask you just a little bit about that and ask you a little bit about, you know, increasingly we have conversations about diversity, equity, inclusion, and I'm, I've become a sort of believer in the idea that going through a mental health journey can give you some qualities that create a more equitable and inclusive environment. It actually, some of it adds value to the workplace, not just that the idea that people need help and support, but because of those experiences they can add value that other people may not be able to do. And I was wondering what your thoughts on that were. For sure. You know, I can really only speak from my personal experience, but certainly having gone on this like mental health journey, it truly helped fuel my desire to launch the employee resource group to support others with struggling with their mental health or whatever that looks like. And to create community around mental health and to create a support structure within the organization that's been really powerful for me and for the organization. It's given me an opportunity to lead a group of people when I'm not a functional, you know, I'm not a leader in my own position, um, but I'm a leader of the ERG. Not a leader. (laughs) My colleague, Emily, and I, who co-lead the group, won a diversity, equity, and inclusion director's award last year for establishing the ERG. So clearly it's something that the agency puts value and resources in around, and it's sort of part of its DEI&A equation. The, the journey led me to taking a detail within the agency to the Office of Equity and Civil Rights, where I was a special emphasis stra- strategist, sort of, special emphasis program strategist for four months last year where we helped special emphasis groups get started. And in fact, I helped launch a disability ERG that's brand new at the agency at the foundation where we're, we're called accessibility um, and providing accessibility and resources for those who have disabilities or other, are they able to, I don't know what the right terminology is. And and we're, we're doing self-ID campaigns and, and, and trying to continue to create a community within the National Science Foundation that supports all of these things. And so it's been a huge part 
for me. It's changing the culture. Right. Shifting. Yeah. Yeah. And, And it must be powerful for you to feel like all the struggle that you went through, you know, being a part of something like the shooting, the, um, you know, uh, the trauma, the anxiety, the mania, the psychosis is bearing such positive fruits for people. Yes. It feels that way. Yeah, yeah, it totally does. I mean, yeah. out of the ashes comes something great, or I don't know what that is. Uh, there's a quote that we use in one of our, um, we've been doing, we've been going around and talking to our agency, but also to a lot of different other agencies. We have a presentation at the SCC next week. We've gone to OPM, to the ERG symposium, to the DEINA summit, as you mentioned before. And one of the quotes that we have in our presentation is from, I just found this online, Catherine Macnett. Now, every time I witness a strong person, I want to know what darkness did you conquer in your story? Mountains mm-hmm. do not rise without earthquakes. I like find that really powerful. Yeah. Wow. Wow. That is a great quote. I hadn't, I hadn't heard that one. I was curious, is the group that you've started at NSF something that you see a lot of in the federal government? No, you know, um, we have done a lot of different talks um, in other agencies and roundtables and workshops and sessions. And to date, I haven't come across any other agency that has a mental health focused employee resource group. I've heard a lot about disability resource groups that have a component that, you know, certainly they talk about mental health but nothing that's been specifically focused around mental health. And I'm super excited because the government is launching a new initiative, part of the president management agenda, which is an interagency mental health and well-being community of practice. And its objective is to promote awareness of federal employee well-being and encourage government initiatives to effectively support employee mental health and well-being within, within and beyond the workplace this is the first of its kind in the government, at least to my knowledge. And I've been uh, selected to be our agency's representative on that group. And I'm just so excited to for the conversations that are to come and, and to carry this this message and this this uh, journey forward and, and, and grow and, and continue to destigmatize mental health in the workplace. One of the things that you, that you just said that made me think of there's probably no other organization, certainly in the United States, but possibly even the world, that touches more people than the United States government. And, you know, if the leaders and the, the people within the U.S. government, um, if their lens shifts on mental health with the employees who work in the government, it, it may open a door for that lens to shift in terms of the way that government addresses mental health more broadly. Right, outside of the confines, yeah. Yeah, and I, I, yeah, just what you said made me think that maybe there's an opportunity here to really change the conversation far beyond just the federal workforce. Absolutely. And I mean, you saw in October the Surgeon General, which is the nation's top health official, 
put out a workplace mental health framework and it's putting the focus on workplace mental health. And it, it is an output, I think, of the pandemic because he said that as we recover from the worst pandemic, we have the opportunity and the power to make workplace engines for mental health and well-being because it's so important because we're struggling with all this burnout and this lack of boundaries between work and home and uh, the stress and the isolation and everything that we've gone through for the last, gosh, it's been almost three years. And so if you know the nation's number one health official is focusing on mental health, clearly we're moving in the right direction. Yeah. We all have a mental health. Wouldn't it be nice to know something about it? <laughs> right? Exactly. I mean, we never talked. I, I've literally never had this conversation. Well, I had a therapist, so obviously I talked to her. But outside of that, and you know, outside of knowing that my dad had bipolar, I've never had conversations about mental health before. Yeah. Before yeah. I went through what I went through in 2020. Right. You know... Turning it back to our shared profession, you know, learning and development, there is one of the things that struck me during COVID, and I'll even take it back a little bit before that, um, you know, because I, I work in the mental health coaching space. I also work in the leadership development space. So I work with a lot of people who focus on leadership development or career development or workplace issues. And one of the things that would happen in coaching, you know, inevitably, when someone had severe anxiety, or they had a mood disorder, I would become sort of like the coach of last resort. So people would be coaching them, the coaches themselves, they would get uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And they would feel as if they just needed to refer them to a therapist and stop coaching. And I'm a firm believer in the idea that coaching can have a real benefit on the practical side on the day to day side of things. But there was a shift during the pandemic. And what I really felt was that if you were not addressing mental health as a coach during the pandemic, you couldn't really be a coach. You couldn't do your job. And I, I really saw it as an opportunity to open the conversation with the coaches I worked with about informing, educating, becoming comfortable with the idea. You know, I think so many people see people with uh, mental health conditions as the boogeyman, that if somebody mm -hmm. has depression or they have bipolar and I say the wrong thing, they're going to blow up and I'm going to be mm -hmm. responsible for it. But everyone has mental health. And I, I felt like, and this was one of the toughest things for me about being in this space, I felt like the coaching profession's tendency to do that just increased stigma. You mm -hmm. know, it was... How did they respond to you when you push them to engage more around. Well, it, and it worked very well. I mean, it ultimately, I'm not saying everyone, everyone came on board with it, but we spent a lot of time during the pandemic. I mean, both for the mental health of the coaches themselves, we probably spent more time than any year talking to each other, having roundtables, having meetups with our coaches. And part of what I did was I educated them on some of the mental health challenges that people faced. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of the coaches like really, really embraced the idea, became comfortable with it. But I think part of what was really driving it was 
the impact of the pandemic on their own mental health, Mm -hmm. certainly on their clients, but their own mental health. So that was the primary, but it's, it's not to say that there weren't some coaches who I feel kind of walked away a little bit, backed away from the profession during that time. Well, and that's the whole thing with like the manager issue. You know, I've gotten inquiries and requests for manager training, around mental health topics. I've had people come to me and say, you know, this person is struggling and I'm not a professional. And and in our, in our employee resource group, we always start with, we aren't professionals. We're just a group of people um, coming together around a particular topic. That's really important to us that we share with each other. This is a safe space, but if you need or seek need professional help, we have the employee assistance, we have the NAMI, you know, we have all of these resources. We have a whole list of resources for people um, to seek out. But I do try to bring in training for managers. We had one last year around um, mental health support. But I do think it goes back to that thing. And, and I'm sure coaches struggle with this too, is like saying the wrong thing and making someone explode or being afraid to to touch on that kind of topic or someone's mental health. I actually had a federal coach through the federal coaching program, which is a program um, that NSF participates in and matches uh, non-supervisory staff typically with coaches throughout the federal enterprise for free coaching. And I had a coach at the beginning of right sort of as I got back to work, I signed up to get a coach and she really helped me with, with my mental health journey. I shared with her that I had gone through this trauma and crisis and, you know, we did things around my strengths and, and what I wanted to accomplish in the next six months. And, but she, she was open to coaching me through what I was struggling with. And she knew I was being treated by a therapist and a psychiatrist and I had other resources. So that's not like what she was trying to be, but she was a, a grounding resource for me at that time. That's awesome. And that that's part of, I think, the the power that I see. And I wanted to ask you just one more question. If you, if you could imagine, look into the future 10, 15, 20 years from now, what what is it you will have wanted to have come out of the very difficult experience that you've come? Like if you imagine your workplace, your colleagues, your children. Yeah, world my children. Yeah. Yeah. My children, um, I want them to, I mean, I think about the children piece a lot because they didn't, they weren't quite old enough to understand what was going on at the time, but at some point I'm going to need to have the conversation with them about mental health and taking care of your mental health and the struggles that I've had. Because again, we talk about this, it's hereditary to some degree. And I already, you know, my older one probably already has some level of anxiety, I want them to not like, I want people to be not afraid to talk about it. Again, it just goes back to that fundamental. We talk about our other illnesses. Gosh, when you talk to the older generation, they like to spend a lot of time talking about what's ailing them, but no one still talks about mental health like that, you know, that I'm feeling really low today, or, you know, I'm having a lot of anxiety around whatever thing's going on for me right now. And it's really impacting my work or I'm really anxious at school because of this. I want to be able to have those open conversations and get them the help and the support that they need. 
And I already have my six-year-old in therapy. Uh, He's meeting with a child psychologist who's helping him navigate his feelings around anger. And that's really more a product of us wanting support around how to help him and how Mm -hmm. to parent him because he's so different than my older one. But it's also helping him. And, you know, I wasn't, and I think five years ago, I wouldn't have thought to do that. Right. But now I'm already having that conversation with my Um, six-year-old. And we were trying to transfer the things that he's learning through that experience at home. And so he hopefully is going to be more aware. And, and, you know, I'd love to have my kids lead groups that talk about mental health. You know, there's a mindfulness community at our local high school that I follow online that does all this great stuff. You know, it's brand new. It's something that they're talking about. I think kids these days struggle with a lot and having gone through the pandemic, it's even harder on them. So, I mean, what's my legacy? (laughs) I just want people to not be afraid to talk about this stuff and to be in turn, get the support and help that they need, especially if they're not getting it because people are afraid to, to get help sometimes. And that's a barrier to getting well. Yeah. I, um, I hate the phrase, just my own thing of paying it forward. I like to say passing it along, but you know, there's a real opportunity. It seems in what you're saying to, pass along the growth that you've experienced to your children, to other employees, to your children's children. Mm -hmm. So they live in a world where we can talk about these things and we all live better lives because we can talk about them and talk about them earlier. I wanted to ask you if you have any closing remarks or things that you wanted to share. I've shared a lot, I think, probably too much. (laughs) Not at all. (laughs) Um, No, I just, I I love having this conversation. I'm so grateful to be asked to to talk with you about this. I I really appreciate your guidance and counseling um, during really the height of when I was struggling a lot and you believed in me and you didn't even know me um, that well. I mean, you'd known me for a couple of years. And so having the opportunity to have a full circle moment as colleagues and peers to talk about something that we both have struggled with, but also have gotten to the other side of and and, and to hopefully open up opportunities for others is just like a huge lift to me and 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 a really exciting opportunity. So I really just thank you for having me. Well, Macy, there's someone you don't know who came before you who gave me the same thing. And mm-hmm. I'm sure there was someone for her before that. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a long line of people that we don't know who have passed it along. Mm-hmm. And so that I think that vision that you're talking about is very much attainable because both of the good that's come in my life and the good that I was able to offer you comes from that long lineage of people who have sort of pushed through those barriers. Mm. So I wanted to thank you for sharing and for being so open and, you know, the work that you're doing on this topic that probably means more to me than virtually anything. So Mm. I want to thank you and thank our listeners for joining us. Um, Thank you for joining us in this conversation with Macy Cox. We're looking forward to 
being with you all again on the next episode. And I'm looking forward to following and updating you on the work that Macy's doing. I'm Jason Blair, and this is the Silver Linings Podcast. <laughs>